afraid of no guns. Welcome to the Shelf Shedding Movie Show. I am uh, your host, Jason Dubray, and I am joined by one Larry Parsons of Rank and Review, and we're Hello. talking supernatural horror movies. I gave you a whole bunch of ideas, and you chose this one. What was it about supernatural horror movies? Well, a couple of things. I'm on hiatus from my podcast right now, but I have been looking back over my shoulder at the 200 or so episodes that have been recorded. And one of my great regrets from early in the show was my review of Ghostbusters. It was an early lesson in the podcast, and I do six shows a week, as often you do. And when I reviewed uh, Ghostbusters for the first podcast, I thought, I've seen Ghostbusters a hundred times, like since I was a kid. I don't need to rewatch it for the podcast. And that was my first abject lesson in always rewatch the movie for the podcast. Because I remember talking to Kevin Stiller, who was my guest for that podcast, and uh, it feeling like I was weirdly grasping for things in this movie that I love. (laughs) So I wanted redemption for that particular review. Uh, There's a couple of the old episodes that I just would love to have do-overs, particularly the first 10 or 12 episodes of Rankin Review. But you you learn by doing. The other thing is supernatural. I mean, if you've listened to my show, you know I favor horror fantasy sort of genres. And so this was playing a little bit more to my tastes. I mean, in the past, we've done, you know, Jeff Bridges and sort of crime thrillers and stuff like that. I love both of those things. But I live for genre movies. So this one seemed like the obvious choice, and I didn't fight it. And it's a really... I think this is your third time on on my show. Each time we've had a good group of movies. I mean, I don't. Maybe you'll disagree. Maybe we'll find out what as we're reviewing. But I don't think in any of the shows there's been something that's been just like god awful. Neither of us, I don't think, like to rip movies apart. We do get into it sometimes if we disagree. But I think we both come from the point of view that we want to have a good time whenever we watch a movie. And sometimes it's disappointing and for me it gets emotional if a movie has let me down or kind of fallen short of what i'm looking for sometimes if you build a movie too much up in your mind you can be set up for a disappointment uh like i guess i'm i'm sympathetic to that but generally i feel like there's enough vitriol online like if you want to go hear somebody yell about star wars that's not going to be hard to find it's easy to pick on a movie that that doesn't completely work or you know make fun of it but I've made a movie. I know what it's like behind the scenes. I know that the worst movie I've seen, somebody put their heart and soul into it. So I try not to be mean, but I will confess, sometimes I fail. It happens, you know, and or if a movie offends you in some some basic way, that that can happen. And that's not the case with the movies we're talking about. Of the six movies, two of them are connected to material originally from uh, a writer, Richard Matheson, who keeps turning up on my podcast. I recently reviewed Trilogy of Terror and also reviewed Duel. The first one we're going to start off with is is The Box which is based on one of his short stories. Then we're going to take a look at the Sam Raimi classic, Evil Dead 2, followed by, as you mentioned, Ghostbusters. This will be Ghostbusters Redemption for you, I guess. I'll let you do I'll let you do all the talking on that one if you want there. Just uh, <laughs> get everything that you needed to say that you didn't say on Rank, rank and Review out. Uh, then we're look at uh, Clive Barker's Lord of Illusions. Then we're going to go back to the 1970s with 
Audrey Rose, starring a fairly young Anthony Hopkins. Not that young, but still fairly young Anthony Hopkins. And we're getting off with A Stir of Echoes. Richard Matheson material, written and directed by David Koch. Anything else you'd like to say about supernatural movies here before we get um, going? I love supernatural movies. I'm not necessarily a believer in the supernatural. I am not a fairly religious person. I know there's certain people that I will that I'll ask to do the podcast to say don't I don't do religious horror, I don't do demonic, that messes with me. I can get into it, I can be frightened by it, but I don't take it super seriously. And I think in a lot of ways, especially with your evil dead twos and your ghostbusters, that is the way to approach this bunch. Some of the others are trying for something a little bit more horror-esque, I think, or scary. Now that there isn't some scary beats in, in those other ones. But I am in a place where I do believe in the supernatural. Uh, and so I find, I mean, I, I did an episode of Religious Horror where I find those types of horror movies really affect me a lot more than slashers or, or anything else. That said, I've watched all of these uh, more than once, and I, I can't say watching them this time I was deeply affected by any of the things we're talking about today. So, Well, it depends on what they're trying to do. I don't think a lot of them, are, maybe maybe stir of echoes, but most of them aren't trying to keep you up at night. They're just trying to tell you a good story, I think. Yeah. And I should probably start off, there will likely be spoilers and some chorus language in this year episode. Hi, Miss Lewis. Morning, boys. Why does the bus stop have to be in the front of my driveway? So I can watch my little Walter get on the bus in one piece. I don't know what she'd do without you. I don't know what I'd do without her. We're already living paycheck to paycheck. We're gonna have to move. I'm sorry about the job, Arthur. You gotta be kidding me. Mrs. Lewis, I assume you received the box. I have an offer to make. If you push the button, two things will happen. First, someone somewhere in the world whom you don't know will die. Second, you will receive a payment of one million dollars. You have 24 hours. Did you get a chance to run that license plate number? Hello, Norma. I hope he isn't playing detective. I have quite a few employees. Somebody pushing your button? What if you say no? There are always consequences. He's testing you. <laughs> we have to save your son or your wife is gonna die. How's she gonna die? You're going to kill her. is written and uh, directed by uh, a filmmaker I quite like. I, I'm not sure. It's a little bit of a mixed bag with him. Some people have some issues. Uh, his name's Richard Kelly. Many considers High Water Mark to be Donnie Darko. And I've yet to see Southland Tales. I actually have a copy of it, but I haven't watched it yet. And I've heard your review where you weren't that thrilled with it. And the box is probably somewhere between Donnie Darko and Southland Tales, which is actually a big gap. Set in the 1970s, 
and it's about a man who is lined up to be an astronaut and his wife who's a teacher and they're given a an offer by a mysterious man that they could have a million dollars if they press the button on this box somebody that they don't know though will die somewhere in the world as soon as they press it and then we're into a little bit of a a moral dilemma as to whether they should do this or not and some things kind of the fates align their life is pretty good on the whole but some things start to happen which make it evident that they could actually use the money which makes that temptation even greater i saw this movie in the movie theater i really enjoyed it from the beginning i think i even had it on my my 10 favorites of that particular year revisited it several times each time i get something a little bit different out of it so i'm coming from a place where i really like the box and I haven't completely understood why it didn't catch on. I know it's one of my criticisms sometimes of horror movies is when they go a bit PG-13. This is a fairly PG-13 horror movie. But I like it. I, I On the whole, I like the performances. I mean, James Marsden and Cameron Diaz, you could probably pick holes in their filmographies if you want to. But I, I thought they served the roles well. But certainly Frank Langella, who is one of, I mean, just one of the great actors of all time, coming in as this mysterious man. And we see him and you know most of his face has been burned off in some sort of terrible accident and we're not quite sure what's happened to him he delivers quite a good performance but that goes without saying because even if he's in a bad movie he delivers a good performance so overall i i'm a fan i'm a fan of all these movies but i am a fan of the box so i'm happy to hear another opinion well you're gonna get another opinion actually because i i like richard kelly but i'm actually more in a place where i want to like richard kelly and i think it's telling that he hasn't made an another movie since then mm -hmm. uh since the box i mean i don't want to spoil your your enjoyment of, of southland tales but i think whereas donnie darko is an almost endlessly fascinating science fiction movie mm -hmm. southland tales is sort of the opposite end of the sci-fi spectrum i think it's just wall-to-wall -wall mess and maybe you'll agree maybe you'll disagree i won't say that the box is a wall-to-wall -wall mess but I think that Richard Kelly's ambition as a storyteller and a filmmaker were almost too big for the story he's telling here. I think that the reason to watch the movie, and I do think that there's a lot of good qualities to it, but the reason to watch the movie is the Frank Langella character. Yeah. I think he's well executed. I think the mystery, that angle of the movie actually works more than the personal character crisis that we see in the Cameron Diaz and um, what's his name? Uh, James Marsden. James Marsden, thank you. That their psychological deterioration works a lot less. And I am also a fan of Richard Matheson, the writer. And I have read this story. And this story is like 11 pages long. And it has nothing to do with aliens doing experimentation on human beings mm -hmm. or like this sort of ever escalating conspiracy that they get thrown into. And it was with this movie, with Donnie Darko, I wasn't I, like I was a fan. I was a little bit rattled by Southland Tales. With the box, I kind of felt like Richard Kelly seemed so focused on creating his identity as this hyper-intelligent, complex, pull-the-rug-out-from-under-you filmmaker that, in a weird way, the core story, which is very simple, gets lost. All that he had to pull to work with was basically the premise of the box. And at the end of the day, that's all that really works for me in the movie. That initial premise, that initial war of 
crisis of, of conscience between the couple mm -hmm. deciding whether or not they're going to hit that button and Cameron Diaz just making the decision for both of them. Once the button is pressed, and I'm sure Richard Kelly and a lot of people would agree with, would disagree with this, but for me, once that button is pressed, the movie actually starts to get more confusing and less interesting. Mm. And there's no, I don't see why the movie is as confusing as it is because the story is not that complicated. It's not Donnie Darko. It's not even Southland Tales. It doesn't require you to have read something before you've watched the movie. It's not, it should be something that, that does the work for you. Here, here's the turns of this very Twilight Zone-ish story. And, you know, Matheson wrote for the original Twilight Zone. This is the yeah. exact sort of premise that they would use. And for me, in the end, it's a great premise in an okay movie. I don't think it's as amazing as Donnie Darko, but it's nowhere near as, I thought, awful as Southland Tales. Mm -hmm. It's right there in the middle. But it kind of left me in a place where I don't know whether or not I'm looking forward to the next Richard Kelly joint, right? Like, I, I would like to see another Donnie Darko, maybe another completely original piece of his, because then maybe this almost willful disregard for or, or, or eagerness to confuse his audience would work more when he's playing in his own sandbox. But if you're adapting somebody else's story, like in Southland Tales, or yeah. if you're adapting a basic premise story, which is the box, which was popular when this was published, a lot of short stories would end basically just leaving you hanging and, and you would have mm -hmm. to fill in the rest of the story yourself. This is not the, the story that, that's being told here. He does reveal everything to you, but it's, it's so big, it's so vast, it's so convoluted. At some point, it's not the box to me. It's Richard Kelly's alien movie. <laughs> so anyway, it's a long way of going with saying, I like the story, I don't love the movie, but I don't hate it either. It's just a hard one for me to like get my head around. Like, Would I recommend it to somebody if they liked Matheson? Maybe not. But would I recommend it to somebody if they liked having their brain a little bit cooked while they watch a movie? Well, I might recommend it to that person. So I'm kind of mixed on it. And I guess... I've always been in a place where I, I don't mind my brain being cooked during the movie because he, he does throw in, and I do agree with you that he took that idea and then he expanded it into a feature-length film, but he's throwing in allusions to no exit very, you know, very intentionally. He has a bit of a Stanley Kubrick-inspired style in some places where you're suddenly seeing some character in the background who has this very unusual look or facial expression, which seems normal at first, but then when you look a little bit closer, it's like you're really kind of freaked out. And so those are all things that seem to work for me. And I don't know that they were working for you as much. I thought on the whole, the movie looked good. There's a wonderful scene kind of uh, because Cameron Diaz, her character, she had this radiation incident with her where she lost her toes and her foot. And yeah. she's talking to Frank Langella, who has part of his face off about how they both, how they reacted to each other and how she reacted to it when she first saw him and thought about, okay, well, she's gone through this pain, but nobody can see on her face that pain every day. And she's thinking how tough that must be for him. It's a really beautiful scene kind of in the second act of the film that worked well for me. You just wish that empathy was a two-way street. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it really wasn't. But given who we find out who Frank Langella is, it makes sense. I also like conspiracy movies on the whole. I, I like the music choice very good with his music choices and the beats pay off like it'll ask make you ask questions but it will answer them if you're wondering why is French with jealous face messed up the movie will answer it if you're asking yourself why do these random people say weird things
things and their nose start bleeding, the movie will answer it. And so in that way, I appreciate it. I think that's something that Southland Tales fails in. They continue get, continually get you to ask questions, but then leave you hanging yeah, forever, right. <laughs> right? Well, and the criticisms of Donnie Darko I've heard, and you know, I, I, I like Donnie Darko a lot. I put it on my favorite. The question was whether it was a horror movie or not, but I put it on my favorite horror movies of, of uh, the 20... 2000s. The but I have heard people say that he raises a bunch of questions, but he doesn't completely get to the point of answering them in Donnie Darko. And I think you really heard about it with Southland Tales. So maybe that's why he kind of wrapped things up a little bit, made it a little bit more accessible, but maybe a touch less interesting. Well, uh, or again, like I honestly feel like the box as its original intent would work best in an anthology. Like it's not a yeah. feature. Yeah. And if you're going to make it a feature, yeah, you're going to have to add a bunch of stuff. I just think once you add the fifth or sixth layer to it, it kind of stops being what it was. Like in a weird way, I feel like I might like this movie more if it wasn't based off of the Richard Matheson short, yeah. short story. It's I just strayed so far away from it that it, it feels a completely different entity now. Fair enough on that. Uh, one thing I know about James Marsden and Cameron Diaz, he based it completely on his parents. And in fact, even even down to uh, the issue with her her foot. It's something that actually happened to his mom. And oh, wow. we see that in kind of the supplementary materials. And so he was kind of taking this story that he loves, throwing in some other illusions and some science fiction stuff, but trying to tell a little bit of a, an homage or a story about his parents and some of the, the stuff that they went through and some of the, the failures and disappointments in their lives. So there's something kind of noble in that, yet I, you're raising the points. I think the reason why this wasn't like a, a big hit or a big, you know, a big movie among horror fans or even really science fiction fans. But I just feel like this is one of those ones that maybe I'm one of the few people that actually uh, likes it. But and I would think after three or four viewings, it would start to wear thin with me. But I get something different every time. So I well, and Mazden and Diaz are an interesting choice for the couple because both of them are kind of very pretty people, but they can act. But yeah. you don't almost expect it from them. They almost look like this perfect Hollywood couple, and that's not what they're playing. I don't know if that helps or hinders the movie, but it's just an interesting choice. You know? And the, the other pieces, I like the he shows pictures of his parents around that age and then in this the 70s and they they looked remarkably similar particularly the, the um, father i think looked a lot like james mars and so I, he probably was going for people actors who would sort of look like them and and could act but also you know maybe a part of the studio thing is to get cameron diaz in there to get a few more people coming and paying their money to to see this kind of weird movie anything else you'd like to say about the box i don't know i feel like i've kind of said it uh, my my fandom for richard matheson might have poisoned the fool a little bit again i don't hate the movie but i definitely don't love it i completely get that and i've done that a few times certainly with stephen king adaptations listening back to my my review of john carpenter's christine i think i was pretty hard on christine because it was it's different than the stephen king book and i really like the stephen king book and i should be kind of separating the two Four years ago, in this quiet forest, in this cozy cabin, something happened. Something so frightening. Something so deadly. Something so evil. We prayed it would never happen again. From the creator of Evil Dead comes Evil Dead 2.
Evil Dead 2 Dead by Dawn. So when it comes to reviewing Evil Dead 2, I'm not quite sure what there's left to say about it. I run into this when we're like reviewing classics like The Exorcist or movies like that. We'll, we'll deal with that in a few minutes with Ghostbusters. I really enjoy this series. Last episode, I ended up talking to Scott about both Evil Dead as well as Army of Darkness. And <laughs> so it worked out kind of well Well, that Evil Dead 2 was, was connected to this episode. It's a lot of fun. And I think the reason that it's a notch or maybe several notches better than Army of Darkness, a movie I absolutely love as well, tons of fun, is really only a few people, a very small group of people, realized they were making a horror comedy. One of them being Sam Raimi, the other being Bruce Campbell. I the said other actors thought it was a straight up horror movie and because they're playing it straight it makes everything else feel so much funnier and so much better and that's where i start with it essentially it's the story of ash going to this secluded cabin with his girlfriend uh, and they end up discovering this book of the dead which they read from which unleashes demons that are attacking them and then it's just a matter of ash as the kind of the the lone man initially there are a few people that join him later on trying to battle this uh this demon that has control over this house yes. and it, this movie is so influential there's a, a movie uh, to me a lesser horror movie called from the 90s called idle hands which has involves this hand beating up this kid being possessed this has just one of the greatest sequences in the history of horror is ash having to cut off his hand and his hand beats the crap out of him and it's funny but it's also somewhat horrifying in places there's a lot of blood lots of guts and it's an hour 24 minutes but it feels like there's a lot happening there's you get in and get straight to the action and the action is non-stop for the entire movie it is a thrill ride it is a classic for a reason i love evil dead 2 i suspect that you also love evil dead 2 well make no mistake evil dead 2 is the best 84 minutes of the evil dead universe that includes mm -hmm. like ash versus evil dead that includes army of darkness the other thing that i like to tell people about evil dead 2 if they were in the weird position of asking me what the fuss was about <laughs> i would say it's first of all not really a sequel it's much more of a remake and that secondly it's not really a horror movie it's much more of a kind of three stooges physical comedy kind of movie with like crazy special effects and a crazy score that wasn't any disrespect to the original movie i don't think i think that when they made the original movie they were trying to make as scary with movies they could with the means that they had at hand yeah. now several years later they're doing a sequel to Evil Dead and they have much more toys to play with. So yeah, it's called Evil Dead 2, but it's much more Evil Dead Redux as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. And they level up Ash's character to such a ridiculous degree. Like in the first movie, a lot of people forget for like the first almost half of the movie, Ash is barely there as a character. Yeah. He, he kind of like finds his salt and gets tougher as the movie goes along, but he is not this badass one-liner throwing zinger guy until Evil Dead 2. But he seems to arrive in Evil Dead 2 fully formed as the Ash we know and love. And it's a splatstick movie, which was a very popular thing, I think, in the 80s. But this was the splatstick movie that got fully embraced by, like, everybody. There's, like, this and Return of the Living Dead. Maybe if you want to go into the 90s, we could talk about, like, Dead Alive or going later into that, like, your, your Black Sheep, where the violence and the storytelling and the beats of the plot are so over the top and so ridiculous that you 
you either have to laugh and love it <laughs> or, or or just it's not for you at all. Like I do get like that Evil Dead is very specific and it's one of those things that you love Evil Dead too or you are absolutely mystified <laughs> as to what the fuss yeah. about Evil Dead too. Uh, I don't think I have to sell this to you at all. I mean, obviously you're, you're on board. Yeah. But to go back where you started and I've said very much the same thing when I talked about Evil Dead 2 on my show. Sam Raimi and I'm sure his brother who plays the demon in the basement and mm -hmm. and Bruce Campbell all know exactly the movie they're making. I don't think anybody else on set knew. I think everybody else on set, because Sam Raimi wasn't still yet Sam Raimi at this point, no. right? They probably watched the first Evil Dead and were like, okay, we're doing a horror movie. And that one was a popular horror movie, so people will see this. And they're earnestly trying to do the straight horror performance. And it's fucking hilarious. It's hilarious yeah. especially as a sherry berry or sherry bird i can't remember the name of the lead actress like she is she's like a, i don't think she's a terrible actress but she's giving such an earnest performance in a movie that doesn't ask it of her that it just it makes me smile every time i know that bruce campbell is able to ham it up and he does so with great panache if you want someone to ham it up he'll do it but i think if you would have cast the entire movie that way it would not have worked it would have been just too too goofy and I mean, I, I don't know, I, may, maybe it's a criticism. I'm, I'm a big fan of Ar uh, Army of Darkness, but I, I think people were well aware that this is now a horror comedy. And so you, you'd see some secondary characters trying to wink at the camera and do a few things that it just didn't work as well as when Bruce Campbell did it. When they kind of lessened... You're not going to be able to match Bruce Campbell. You can't. You're just not. It's like trying to out Shatner Bill Shatner in a scene. Yeah. Just, it's not going to happen. <laughs> uh, the only person I can think of is Jim Carrey that is in that stratosphere but he does something completely different than what Bruce Campbell does and like I mean I think the best horror from Army of Darkness is was when Bruce Campbell is left alone by himself and it's kind of the that second act is kind of the Bruce Campbell show and and we have big sections of that in Evil Dead 2 as well where he's in that cabin for a long time before you know the uh, that the redneck couple and then the, um, the, the the others show up the ones who are connected to the professor who was studying all of this and then they kind of meet their inevitable fates there but well they yeah, revisit I, things in the first movie too this is why i say it's like a remake like if he knew that this cabin was cursed he wouldn't drive his girlfriend out there again right um well she doesn't like her that much yeah i suppose yeah <laughs> but uh they recreate the scene where the woman is is taken by the trees like they i don't know it, it's it's a weird one it's it's almost weird that they called it evil dead too but yeah. i'm not complaining yeah i feel like we were doing like short trip to it here but i mean it is an established classic i don't think either of us need to sell people on it it I, does suffer from middle chapters syndrome i think i'm sorry I, I was gonna say if somebody who's a horror fan has not seen this movie they need to see it now oh yeah sure. i will say it, it's a trilogy like this is a trilogy of movies and the evil dead 2 is very much the empire strikes back of this trilogy yeah. like yeah. it is loudly the best of the three of them but all three of them are worth your time but there's just something that's so perfectly crystallizes evil dead to me in this chapter it's it's dead by dawn and before we move forward i just want to just shout out those creature effects i know that there's like some stop motion stuff in here and that a lot of people are like that takes them out of it now it's just too much of a cartoon i love stop motion animation i I just I, it, it's not going to take me out of it and i still think the big rubbery juicy monsters like henrietta in the basement and the witch mm -hmm. and that turns into the weird serpent creature for no reason but it's awesome <laughs> 
those special effects stand up. And yeah. like, if somebody was foolish enough to do a remake with CGI, I really don't believe that it would capture the same essence of Evil Dead. The movie is ridiculous and hilarious and silly. And like I say, because it's the middle chapter, it doesn't even really have a beginning or an ending. It's weird how loved this movie is, but I am one of the people who loves it. You're right. Like, I don't know. I don't see who we're selling this to. Like, I don't imagine anybody listening to this podcast <laughs> Saying like Evil Dead Two, I've never even heard of that. <laughs> right? Right? There might be a couple people I know if they're listening, they that might not, or it might not be the thing necessarily. But or again, if they didn't know that there was some serious comedy to it, or that this was brought to you by the guy who brought, you know, would would later give you the Spider-Man trilogy and, and you know a lot of really great. Yeah. You know Sam Raimi joints going forward, and he was very young when he made this movie. This is a third professional feature, so always gonna love the Sam Raimi. Like, <laughs> um, I, I go in cautiously optimistic to the new Doctor Strange because he's directing it, right? Like yes. Sam Raimi, just uh, I feel like I can confidently put my 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 money down on the table for his next picture. On the whole, for me too, that's the way. And I know this, and this is one I probably need to revisit, and I maybe wasn't in the right headspace but the only one in that's kind of in this universe that i don't care for is the remake and i know oh, you, i thought you were gonna say uh you were gonna talk about drag me to hell no uh, i can get I, to drag me to hell yeah in <laughs> as far as the filmography of sam raimi that's one i still am trying to figure out people love it and i still just haven't gone behind that but as far as the, I whole, love the remake universe, bad, yeah the, the remake i yeah you really like that one too and that's what led me to think i need to give it another go maybe my arms are crossed and like oh this is not Where's Bruce Campbell? This is not an this is not an Evil Dead movie without Bruce Campbell. Yet I think if they tried to recast Ash or do something like that, that may, would have made me even more mad. I suppose no, it's yeah. not so much a strictly speaking remake of Evil Dead as it is a reimagining of Evil Dead. And what would Sam Raimi have done with Evil Dead if he had all the tools in the toy box to scare us? Because as much as I love Evil Dead, it's a very amateur, very handmade, very friends made this movie, yeah. and the remake is a professional piece of horror cinema designed to gross you out and terrify you. And I think that's what he was setting out to do with Evil Dead. Whether or not he succeeded, he still succeeded in making one of the most important cult movies of the 80s. And even though Evil Dead is one of the most important cult movies of the 80s, I think Evil Dead 2 surpasses it on pretty much every level. Yeah, it's one of the best horror movies of the 1980s, period. And that was, I mean, that was the decade for horror in many ways. There was so much stuff released in that decade. And for this one to have the legacy that it does, it's it's a great film and people check it out. It doesn't feel in the same way like, uh, I mean, obviously it's a cheesy, over-the-top horror movie, but... It doesn't feel 80s in a weird way. There's a strange, timeless quality to Evil Dead 2. <laughs> I, can wa- I mean, I watched it in the 90s, watched it in the, throughout the 21st century. And it, yeah, there isn't that cringy moment where you're just going, oh, that's very 80s. That, that, it's not that soundtrack cue. Every now and yeah. then there'll be some fashion statements, some sound cue, mm-hmm. or just something that happens that is so out of time that it takes you out of the movie. But I don't, I don't find that here. <laughs> I'm just yep. smiling the whole time. No, it's a good time. And if you want it, like the idea of fun horror movies, this is a fun horror movie. Sometimes horror movies can be draining and like emotionally exhausting. This is not one of them. I would say if you're wanting to have a good time, watch Evil Dead 2. Ghosts. Hello, Ghostbusters. They're real. You do? 
you have? They're here. Ghostbusters. Hey, anybody see a ghost? They catch the ghost that won't stay dead. They're armed. They're dangerous. Try to imagine all life as you know it stopping instantaneously and every molecule in your body exploding at the speed of light. All right, that's bad. Okay, all right, important safety tip. Thanks, Egon. They're professionals. Oh, I'm the chairman of the largest paranormal removal company in America. Did you see it? They're all that stands between you and the end of the world. The city is headed for a disaster of biblical proportion. Real wrath of God type stuff. Exactly. Fire and brimstone coming down from the sky. Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. Your girlfriend lives in the corner penthouse of Spook Central. You want this body? Is this a trick question? Got your stick. Hold. Heat up. Smoke it. Make him hard. Ready. Ghostbusters. Starring Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, Sigourney Weaver, Harold Ramis, Rick Moranis. Coming to save the world. Who you gonna call? Ghostbusters. We came, we saw, we kicked it. I live every day of the 1980s, but yet I feel like I became a, a movie nerd a little bit more in the 90s. And so I have a kind of the nostalgia that a lot of people have for the 80s, I have for 90s cinema. Ghostbusters was enormous, an enormous release. I, you'd have to be under a rock to not know about Ghostbusters. My way, because I was too young to see it in cinemas, my way of getting interested in Ghostbusters was kind of a mix of the animated TV show, the real Ghostbusters. Plus the toys and collecting the toys and playing with the toys and knowing about, you know, Slimer and the uh, uh, Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. Long before I had seen this live action film, which Dan Aykroyd and that team got together and became a, a classic of the 80s which had a little bit of scares, a little bit of a horror, a fair amount of comedy, a bit of a look at supernatural and paranormal phenomena, which has always been an interest of, of Dan Aykroyd. And it's it's lasted, uh, and of course this month we're, we're seeing the next generation of it with Jason Reitman's entry in the Ghostbusters franchise. I don't know how that's going to go or how that's going to be, but uh, going back to Ghostbusters, I mean, I, this is obviously anything called Ghostbusters, the movie version, Version is the best version of it. But I don't think I have the love or the nostalgia for it that a lot of people have. And so putting it up against this group of movies that are all, to me, very good, and some of them are lesser known movies that I kind of want to champion, I don't know where that quite places Ghostbusters, but I would be out of my mind to say that Ghostbusters is a bad movie. It's entertaining, it's fun, I had a good time with it. Watching Bill Murray in there, improvising a storm, and then you have Sigourney Weaver, the great Sigourney Weaver, and her scenes with Murray are, are fantastic. I, I would have liked to be on set to see the two of them working together, because it would have been really 
really interesting to see. Rick Moranis, great, uh, great Canadian comedy legend, makes an appearance in there. And Ernie Hudson kind of shows up towards the end. And maybe a little bit of an afterthought. It might be a little bit of a criticism of the movie. But overall, you know, I don't have to sell people on Ghostbusters like I don't have to sell people on Evil Dead 2. I know you really love Ghostbusters. So here's your chance to kind of make up for a ranking review review of Ghostbusters. Well, obviously, Ghostbusters is undoubtedly now like a movie of a different time. And like, it it makes me feel old. But the comfort that I have in Ghostbusters is that it is still very much a viable property. Like, despite the the Lady Ghostbusters movie getting, you know, shunned by the internet, I still don't think that's a terrible movie, you guys. I think that too much has been made about it. But it, it does feel like Ghostbusters, the product, has become like weaponized nostalgia, right? But I want to try. To, to remind people of how different the world was in, I want to say, 84? I think 84, yeah. Being a nerdy kid was not celebrated in 1984. The fact that this was a movie about a bunch of science nerds that were like the outsiders that figured out how to catch ghosts and that like that validated them and made them quote cool was kind of a powerful message at the time. Like nowadays, if you're a little kid in school and you play Dungeons and Dragons or you watch anime or you are into anything like that, you can wear it loud and proud. There was a time, and I think the 80s was that time where you were a little bit shunned into your corner. And Dan Aykroyd specifically, who's one of the stars in the writer of Ghostbusters, I think represents for that community. And he champions it. And I don't think that, that Ghostbusters could happen like almost in any other time. It is absolutely a lightning in the bottle movie, as evidenced by the sequel. The sequel, mm-hmm. same writer, same cast, same director, and it's as bad as the Ghostbusters is good, okay? But, like, all of the problems with the 80s are also present here. I love me some Bill Murray. Venkman's an asshole. Venkman is an asshole. Comedic leads in the 80s were assholes. Like, the Steve Gutenberg template in the Police Academy, like, Ferris Bueller. All of these people are affable assholes. Everything Mm -hmm. that they do and say is terrible, but we like them because they got a good heart and they're essentially charming. It's weird how, like, that does not fly at all anymore in the modern age. And yet, Ghostbusters still remains. People still watch Ghostbusters. Reaction channels on the internet all through the Halloween season were lousy with people reacting to Ghostbusters. And as crazy as I was about films, like, uh, I wouldn't be watching movies that were more than 20 years older than I was. Like, how many movies from 1956 do you watch? Like, I'm born in Saturday. Yeah, the odd one, but not a whole lot, no. Right. People know Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters has serious cultural impact. Cultural impact that is really hard to quantify or even qualify or explain. Because a lot of the movie shouldn't work anymore. The boys chain smoke through the whole thing. The environmental protection agency guy, Walter Peck, is doing everything right in the movie by trying to monitor, like, trying to monitor what they're doing and, like, what's all this dangerous equipment and what are you doing with like it's really like a weirdly right-wing movie in in places too (laughs) it is isn't it yeah and yet it's hilarious when it wants to be funny it's very funny when it wants to be scary it's very scary i think the great accomplishment about ghostbusters is how unapologetically it is ghostbusters and it's weird. Like, people almost should have turned around. There should be, like, a backlash against Ghostbusters. But I've never heard it. I've never heard a bad thing said about Ghostbusters. You 
your little sort of somewhat dismissive opening salvo on this is as close as to anything I've heard anyone say negative about Ghostbusters. And if you think I'm about to like segue into going into something negative, you're wrong. <laughs> okay. The two great problems that, that I still see is like, not even really problems, they're just like, it could have been better. I think more could have been done with Ernie Hudson's character. Yeah. He gets brought into the movie about past the halfway point. He's an afterthought of a character. He's nice, he's friendly, but he is the token black guy. He doesn't have a lot to do and he's thrown in. I have the original theatrical poster of Ghostbusters that says, That's coming great. to the world this summer. And... He's not on the poster. Ouch. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Man, we can say it was 1984 and it was a different time, but regardless, ouch. <laughs> he's clearly um, one of the ghostbusters i mean yeah you know. he is one of the and they definitely try to take steps to amend that in the second movie but as far as a flaw in the first movie that I, I i think that still stays true and it's surprising how reliant this movie is on montages there's a whole like sequence in the early part of the movie where like they go from buying the building to becoming famous in a montage and when walter peck destroys the equipment and the ghosts are released on the city we get an epic montage and I, that that's very 80s but it's one of the few times in the movies now where i actually feel like i'm getting unplugged from the movie for a minute you didn't mind that back then though oh like, of course not of course not no i'm sorry no, i'm talking about like where it's starting to show age today yeah. I, I just it's a little bit over reliant on the montage and that's a very 80s move to make i love rick moranis in fact this is one of my favorite rick moranis performances a little bit of trivia maybe an aside cut it if you want they really wanted john candy to do that role but for whatever reason he wasn't in on it like he just feel like but i like that either they didn't get john candy so they settled with rick moranis another canadian comedian yeah. who fucking nailed it just yeah. nailed it I, I don't know how different the movie would have been with John Candy, but I love John Candy too. So it's hard not to see Rick Moranis in that role. It's funny too, you're talking about the uh, chemistry between Sigourney Weaver and uh, Bill Murray. Sigourney Weaver is an incredibly professional actress. So I don't think she'd ever say out loud that she hates Bill Murray's guts, but yeah. she fucking hates Bill Murray's guts, right? Yeah. <laughs> so. And that that's the story that is told of Bill Murray from movie set to movie set. I think. Yeah, there's a lot of, especially his leading ladies don't tend to get along with him a lot. I think that Bill Murray's just one of those celebrities that that you just don't want to meet. You can you you can be a fan of Bill Murray, you can love Bill Murray, just don't meet the guy. <laughs> I think he was dragged along in this project. I think he was reluctant and he was certainly reluctant and had all kinds of demands for the second one and helped kind of tank it a little bit. So it's, it's, it's in, he's an interesting guy because, you know, he's such a good actor, you know, and he's such a welcome presence in any movie. Yet, I don't know, I think he's just can be difficult and temperamental. He's past his best before date, unfortunately. I think that Bill Murray is the guy to play the likable asshole. But the mm -hmm. likable asshole character is kind of running out of his usefulness. You trick me into saying anything shitty about Ghostbusters. That's, that's no, not going to happen. <laughs> and I, I don't want to trick you into saying anything like that. I think that's the, uh, again, those who want to go in with their arms crossed and like this is 2021 and look for things. Probably Bill Murray's character and how he, he you know, kind of uses these psychological tests to try to 
to meet women and like he's without permission kind of inserts himself into Sergoni Weaver's life is a little bit cringy in how he does that. I mean, it all kind of works out for the arc of the story. He does not take no for an answer well. No. He does manipulate the student, like you were saying, to try and get her in the bed. And worse than that, the other guy in the other chair who's actually getting some of the answers right, he's ignoring. He's not even a good scientist. No. He's neither a good person nor a good scientist. But he's charming and funny, so we like him for some reason. And rom-coms of the 80s and 90s are riddled with that guy. Mm -hmm. And Bill Murray is crown prince of that guy and i think like we're moving past it a lot of the stuff in ghostbusters we've moved past but for some reason culturally we will not let go of this movie and i don't think that we will i think that ghostbusters 2 will be forgotten i think the lady ghostbusters will be forgotten and i know that this new ghostbusters is sight unseen so far but i've seen the trailer i know that there's a stay puff marshmallow man and there's a devil dog in it and that they're just trying to recreate the first movie's vibe and i don't know i don't know i'm skeptical i'm skeptical i, I want it to be good don't get me wrong but yeah. there's something about ghostbusters that i can't put my finger on that nobody can put their finger on it just needs to be left alone ghostbusters is ghostbusters and ghostbusters was was 1984 but i think generations will continue to enjoy watching it <laughs> as you said it's lightning in the bottle you can't duplicate something like that and as much as they try with these remakes and sequels and next generation things that we we have so many of right now i think when you go trace it back to the original the original is the thing that was the, the success and anything else after that doesn't work quite as well i I feel like I'm sounding like a negative on this. If it's I mean, great, it's great. I'll be happy. But I, I, I don't anticipate it, it, it reaching the level of the original because, I'll go in with again, tempered expectations, like low expectations, yeah. and maybe I'll be surprised. Maybe that, that's the way to approach this new one. I do want to mention, though, I think the special effects, practical special effects on the whole, hold up. Again, not CGI like we talked about with Evil Dead 2. And I just... I just feel like the special effects are going to hold up for generations where we see these CGI, like the, especially the initial 1990s and early 2000s special effects movies have started to, to age because of the CGI. I, I really think yeah. the effects and everything they put into it and the vision, and we didn't really talk about Harold Ramis either. Uh, may he rest in peace, but also He's he, I, I kind of like giving one of the funniest He's good, and Danny Fox are really good too. Uh, I kind of at the side. They're always there's always something kind of going on. These side stories there, which they aren't taking the time to spend a whole bunch of time on, nor do they need to, because they do concentrate on the central action of the story. But you see the relationships and how they kind of develop over the course of the movie in, in a very subtle way. If for some crazy reason somebody who's listening to this podcast has not seen Ghostbusters, even more than Evil Dead Two, I would say pause, stop, watch Ghostbusters. You need to catch up that was 1984 no. so nearly 40 years ago that came out and it's it's one where i it's, wish i had been old enough to see in the theaters i think that would have been an amazing experience it's culturally impactful and like i say like maybe the terror dogs look a little rough around the edges special effects wise now mm -hmm. but I, I i i'm totally willing to let that go i i think you in a weird way have to just be in a sour mood or wanting not to like ghostbusters to not at least see some superficial 
artificial charm in it. I think like between the comedy, the technical achievement and the imagination in the movie, if you find nothing of worth in Ghostbusters, I would be absolutely mystified. <laughs> so it, it, yeah. its cultural impact is huge. It still ripples, in, in, you know, onward into the culture. And uh, I feel like if you're even a little bit into movies, you should at least have an opinion on it. So yes, long reign Ghostbusters. Something is watching. Something is listening. Something is coming. How would you like to see the world the way it really is? What's going on here? Detective Harry Damour is walking a path. I want you to help me. Will you take the job, Mr. Damour? Where do I sign up? Between what can be seen. People are dying here. I want to know why. I've heard a name. Somebody they talk about in whispers. Who? Nick's. And what must be feared? Nick's is dead and buried. What the hell is wrong with you people? Haven't you seen enough to know that doesn't matter? No. I don't want him getting in the way. We've always waited too long to have the homecoming spoiled. Every step he takes. The drone. The dark side. You don't like that. Not much. It's your destiny. Accept it. Brings him closer to the truth. He could get into people's heads. Make them see things. Terrible things. See, that's his best trick. No illusions, just the truth. If Nix is back from the dead, then he is some kind of a god. In a world where magic is real, death is the ultimate illusion. I was born to murder the world. Are you ready for my wisdom? It's not real. Stop looking at You want to come with me, Damor? I've got so much power to give you. All you have to do is beg. Clive Barker's Lord of Illusions. Now, a, a, an interesting and I, I almost feel like forgotten 1990s horror movie that's uh, written and directed by Clive Barker called Lord of Illusions, um, starring Scott Bakula, who at the time it came out was kind of big on TV with the Quantum Leap program. And he plays a, a private eye who uh, gets more than he bargains for when he encounters Philip Swan, who is this performer of illusions. And there's a difference in this movie where they talk about magic versus illusions, which was kind of an interesting idea to me that I hadn't really thought of. It's a really creative good looking film. I, I quite enjoyed it. Some familiar faces. There's kind of this super evil magician I think would be the proper term called Nix played by Daniel Von Bargen who if you don't know the name you'll have seen him in some movies. He often plays kind of villains and, and heavies. He's got one of those movies. faces that you have seen. <laughs> and then Phelps Swan played by uh, Kevin J. O'Connor another name you will or a face you would recognize to to see in, in movies. Femke Jensen? Yeah, Femke Jensen, right? Femke Jensen? Jensen, something like that. Jensen? Yeah, 
Tenka Jansen, for some reason, since I last saw this movie and from this viewing for preparing for the show, I'd forgotten that uh, she was the female lead in the movie. And she's very good. I mean, I, I just like her in, in, in anything. So the acting to me works. And I, re- I remember we once reviewed Nightbreed together, which was another uh, Clive Barker directed and written film. I want to revisit it again someday because I think it was maybe a bit hard on it. But I didn't care for that one as much. But Lord of Illusions, I don't know what it is. It, it, when it was released in 1995, it kind of came to theaters and disappeared. And there was always this one I was curious about. And when I finally got to see it, I was like, oh, what happened to it? Why did it not sort of take off? And why wasn't it big? Because I think it's a very creative movie. I know it wasn't exactly the decade completely for horror. And maybe it wasn't released in the wrong decade. But I, I like it quite a bit. And there's some 90s touches to it, particularly with Scott Bakula's performance that, again, the, the nostalgia for me is there for this one. So maybe I'm willing to make a few more excuses for some of the flaws in, in this story. But I quite like Lord of Illusions. What do you think about it? I would say that, well, I'm a big fan of Clive Barker, which helps. Yeah. And I do like the story. I think the 90s was the wrong time for Clive Barker in a weird way. Uh, The 90s was all about being self-aware and winking at the audience and having meta sort of angles to your, your horror. Clive Barker does not wink. Clive Barker is 100% straight-laced, visceral, sexual, ugly horror. And he wants to disturb you. Yep. Like uh, Stephen King, I remember seeing an interview, reading an interview with Stephen King where he says, like, uh, usually I want to genuinely get under your skin and scare you. And if I can't do that, then I'll go for the violence and the gross set. That seems to be the place where Clive Barker lives in a weird way. There's an icky uncomfortableness to them. I think that Lord of Illusions is on one hand clearly his most polished and accomplished work as a director, but two things in the story hurt it from being a fully, fully engaging for me as a horror movie. When you're involving magic as a major portion of your movie yeah. and the idea, is it real, is it not? It's a tricky, tricky thing to do in movies. In order for magic to really wow you and impress you, you have to be in the room. You have to see it. When you watch a movie, it's a movie. They can use every trick, every special effect, every illusion. And anytime you make a cut from one character to another, a whole day could have gone by in production. Like, seeing magic, quote-unquote, is never quite the same in a film. And this whole plot anchors on these illusions. So that hurts it. And the other thing that that films have a hard time doing well, even though you and I did a really good episode of Rank and Review about it, is cults. Uh, The main leader of the the plot, I can't remember the name of the actor, the big bald guy, you just mentioned him. Yeah, Daniel Van Bogen. He was ostensibly a cult leader risen from the dead to and, and he's got all these acolytes that are that are following him. This is all sort of what the movie is leading to. And two of the hardest things to come across convincingly or to make frightening or intense on film are cults and magic. And the yeah. two focused horror things in the in the book and in the movie are, are those two things. And that really sets you at a disadvantage cinematically. I think it works way better as a book than as a movie just because of those inherent problems with it. I think Scott Bakula is a really good actor. In fact, I think he, like George Clooney, should have been rescued from television and made into a proper you know, movie star. It never really yeah. seemed to happen to him. His, his whole career seems to be almost but not quite. And uh, Harry Delamore, this, this character that we see here, 
he's sort of like a private eye in Clive Barker's world, but we'll see this character show up again in other stories. And I'm not saying that I pictured Bacula's face when I read the stories, but he fits it. He fits it comfortably. Like he yeah. does the good, like the whole tattoos, the sexual ambiguity, the whole the way he threads the line between the real world and the supernatural world. All of that, I think the characters work, the plot machinations less so, I guess is what I'm, the roundabout way of me saying it. Of the three movies that he directed, he never has made another film after this. He basically mm -hmm. abandoned making films and became a painter. He likes to reinvent himself, Mr. Barker does. I'm kind of disappointed. Like I say, I'm a defender of uh, Nightbreed, Warts and All, but yeah. I, it's more the story and the imagination. And in that movie, the story and the imagination is being smothered because he's having a hard time fully executing it. And he's a little bit too ambitious with it. In this one, he's reined it back. But the story he's trying to tell is almost anti-cinematic. So it, it, it tangled him. I think between that and the fact that it wasn't as successful, in a way, they each consecutive film, for whatever their accomplishments, were less well-received than the previous. And I, I think he, he, he walked away a little bit demoralized as the, being a filmmaker. But, you know, you're still Clive Barker. You're still going to be publishing novels. You're still going to be making paintings. You're still an artiste. But yeah. I don't think he should have thrown in the towel. I mean, no. I'm not one of these people who think just because you're good at one thing means you're inherently going to be good at another. Just because you can write a novel doesn't mean you can direct a movie, Stephen King, right? But... Uh, <laughs> Clive Barker was pretty damn close to there. Like, especially Hellraiser, having revisited that whole series fairly recently, that first movie is, as a first film, is quite accomplished. But again, he helps himself with that. It's basically all set in one house. There's mm -hmm. a couple of real flourish sequences where they have to focus on the special effects. But because there's only one or two of those, they could really, really spend the time they needed. In a weird way, like you needed, like with Candyman, maybe uh, another director or, or, or somebody to help Clive Barker visually render this world. The characters are there, the story's there, but something was holding me back from Lord of Illusions. Would I recommend the movie? Yes. Like, I, I'm a fan of Clive Barker. And I think this movie works more as a gateway drug into the Clive Barker world. Like, I could see watching this and say, I should, I should read some Clive Barker. And if that happens, yes. But I think it's closer to, like, a three-star movie than a five-star movie. It gets the job done, but I'm not wowed by it. I just think it deserved a bit more attention than it was given. And that's and why... That's timing. I think that's timing. Like, it, I have to sell people probably on seeing this way more than Evil Dead 2 or Ghostbusters, which are household names. And I, I feel like it sure. maybe should have been given a little bit more of a chance. And I just don't know. You're probably right about when it was released and it was just the wrong time for that type of movie. And I also agree with you about the cult scenes and, like, the, the people that supposedly spend all these years in the same spot waiting for... Maybe it's a comment on religion or something. The same, the same spot waiting for this Nyx to come back to life. And they haven't really changed all that much. But yeah, I, I thought those, those, that was a little bit of a initially, I'm like, oh, I don't know. But I, I like the setting. It's out in the desert. And then we get into kind of the New York piece and then into the L.A. I think the, the film noir influences that Barker included in, in the story were quite effective as well. Yeah. So I, I'd, I'd probably be more than three stars for me. But I understood the point you're making. I've seen this as the greatest 
uh, movie of all time. I still would like people to check it out and judge for themselves and just kind of keep the idea of this somewhat forgotten 1995 movie alive here. So that's why I'm maybe, I, I don't know if I'm overselling it, but I think Lord of Illusions is a, is a good time. And I, I think yeah. people should check it and out. And it is a good time. I, I feel like I'm hard on it because, again, much with Matheson, I'm a fan of the source material. Again, it's a movie that I like, but I want to love. You know, so like maybe I'm grading it a little bit harder because of that. Also, Kevin J. O'Connor, who plays the illusionist magician, it sort of starts the machination of the plot i've seen him in a few other things he's in deep rising and he's yeah. in uh, this outbreak on a plane the zombie movie on a plane that i saw and i think he is a little bit of an overactor not necessarily in a bad way i think jack lemon's an overactor he's a great actor he just puts an extra coat of paint on everything he does but because of that because with that actor i feel him or see him acting mm -hmm. he works better for me in a more crazy ludicrous comedic kind of setting i get your point I, I feel like there's some heightened elements to this particular story and the character that justified it, yeah. it, that makes sense here but I get when you watch him in one movie after another after another where he's kind of doing kind of the same. Not every role that he has requires that kind of level of theatricality, I suppose. And so that that makes Correct. sense. He's not he, he's there. He's not my favorite part of the movie. I, I again, I kind of cling a little bit more to to Jensen and to uh Tabacula. I think the the romance, the romance of the scent, and again, this is a very 1990s thing that you know they, of course, they get together. But I'm having when I go to revisit some of these 90s movies, stuff I used to accept as, oh yeah, that's that makes sense. This is the point of the movie where that would happen. Where I'm like, where did that come from? Like, I don't see, <laughs> I don't see the move from they meet each other and they're in this, you know, rather dramatic situation into they're in bed together. It just feels like oh, okay, he's hot. He's, he's hot. They're both hot together. Yeah. Ergo, they must have sex. Vanessa Johansson is a very beautiful woman, and she came out of modeling. And of her early roles, this is definitely one of the better ones for her. I did not like her Bond movie particularly, and uh, she did the remake of The House on Haunted Hill. And as much yeah. as I found that movie amusing, she's not the strongest part about that movie. So no. I think once she got into the X-Men and started working more regularly, she became quite confident and knew where to put herself in the movie that she could yeah. do the job. I think she's a good actress, but I, I'm not convinced she can do just anything. I thought this was a good role for her. And she, she was in on the action. I mean, she wasn't purely, uh, you know, a damsel in distress. I, I, I don't think she did. Like, she kind of did some rescuing herself. It could have been more so. It could have been better. But it was 1995 as well. So Yeah. And Clive Barker, and if you read his work, you'll, you'll notice this too, does not seem to hold the same interest for his female characters as he does for his male characters. Seems to happen, <laughs> Just, just the, the male gaze, I guess. But. Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah, and not the only I, I would, I would say absolutely check out Lord of Illusions. I'm not trying to talk anybody out of it. I would just say it's a good horror movie. It maybe falls short of great to me. That's all. But hey, I'm always down for a good horror movie. I, I, I think you've watched one or two of them. Yeah, every now and then. So yeah, I think it's thumbs up reviews for Lord of Illusions. Check it out if you can find it somewhere. I think it's it's worth uh, worth looking at and giving a second life to. The mother. The father, the child, the stranger. He's going to harm us. It's Ivy he's after. The past, the present, the nightmare, <coughs> the terror. I saw her burn her hands on a cold window. <coughs> the movie, Audrey Rose, the novel of reincarnation.
is now a spellbinding motion picture. The pain, the anger, the trial, the test. Your eyelids are getting so heavy. The question. Audrey. The answer. Never the truth! The torment. <laughs> the truth. We are both a part of this child. It will alter your ideas about life after death forever. So I feel like I've told you this story before that I, I, I went through some phase of my, I don't know, childhood or if it was maybe even it was like early teens where, and I've never been great at getting to sleep at night. And at midnight, CTV would play these movies and they would go for movies that were 15, 20 years old in kind of the 90s or the 80s. And just one night, this movie came on called Aubrey Rose. I didn't know anything about it. And there were some parts in it that just freaked me right out where I was like, I actually had a reaction where I was scared almost to the level of something like watching The Exorcist. It was the 1970s and there were a lot of movies about where children were at the kind of the center of the film and actually being asked to do some fairly tough things uh, in, in the movies they were in. And Audrey Rose does have a, it's directed by Robert Wise, terrific director. He, he did The Haunting, of course, and, and it has a pretty good cast. Again, before a lot of people were paying that much attention to Anthony Hopkins, he was in a movie called Magic that we both quite like, or a movie in the, in the, the uh, late 70s. And he's the lead actor in this, as well as Marsha Mason. And Marsha Mason is... Uh, She's very good. Yeah, she's a um, her body of work in in so many different roles has been great. She's a to me at the time she would have been kind of like comparable to like a Meryl Streep type of a person or a Glenn Close who would of of that generation. She would have been in. She got a lot of work in the seventies, and so her and her husband are finding themselves stalked by this really strange seeming British man played by Hopkins who has taken an unusual interest in their daughter and it's New York City and they're like there are a lot of creeps out there what's going on and we start to find out that this man has had much tragedy in his life where he there was a car accident where he lost his wife and his daughter and through talking to some psychics and some spiritual people over the years he has been convinced that that death is not the end and that his daughter would have been reincarnated and he has traced it back and believes that his daughter named Audrey Rose has been reincarnated as uh, the daughter of this couple. And they found that there's night terrors that this, this uh, young girl has and she has these dreams and a lot of them revolve around her feeling like she's on fire and they can't really explain it and they're looking at psychologists and that, again, very much like Regan and the exorcist trying to explain scientifically something which seems to be connected to the supernatural. I, again, maybe this is one where not a lot of people remember this movie and I want people to check it out and form their own opinions, but I, I maybe have, a, I recognize the flaws, but I have a bit of a soft spot for Audrey Rose. I, even revisiting it, I thought, okay, there's a difference between watching it when I'm younger at midnight and 
being a little bit more imaginative and susceptible. But in my 40s watching this, yeah, it didn't scare me as much this time. But I think it's it's an interesting story that has potential. Yet there are some cringeworthy moments and some things that, that haven't aged that well, that are very 1970s. The pace in particular is very 1970s. And I think there's kind of a sequence that kind of in the third act where we get into a court drama, which again, doesn't seem to make sense to me that we would get to that place as much as this is supposedly based on a true story. So, so all that to say, I like Audrey Rose, but I'm, I'm interested in your opinion on it. Well, it's based off of a novel. Maybe that novel was based off, supposedly based off of a true story. Supposedly based off, yeah. <laughs> I think you kind of nailed it when you said it's very 70s. And I'm not just talking about the aesthetic of like, you know, the, the, the print of the film or the style of the clothes or its willingness to take its time. In fact, those are all things that I value in a horror movie. Yeah. This sort of period of movies when they're like The Shining, The Changeling, The Entity, those really get under your skin horror movies really do work for me. I would put Audrey Rose much to the lesser of that stack of movies that I just listed here. But Robert Wise, like this is not a B-list director, okay? This nope. is an A-list director. Didn't he do... Well, he did The Haunting and he did a famous musical that I believe... is it Was it uh, West Side Story? Yeah, West Side Story. Am I, am I making he directed The Sound of Music as well. Sound of right. Music. He did Star Trek, the motion picture. But yeah. like, uh, as this was later on in his career, and I think in the 70s especially, because it was such an auteur decade, there was a weird competition going on. Like Kubrick made The Shining because he felt like he was being outpaced in the horror genre by people like, uh, you know, the guy who did The Exorcist. Uh, my my, uh, my brain just went empty. Yeah, you know. Uh, and so it was always part of the zeitgeist. And at this time, everyone was trying to make the next exorcist. And that's what this movie is. It was a popular novel. Uh, Reincarnation was in. There was another movie that came out right around the same time as this called The Reincarnation of Peter Proud. That huge zeitgeist water cooler movie, just like this one. At the time, this was a big conversation piece and everybody was talking about it. But within a few months, maybe a year or two, they were all forgotten about except for The Exorcist and The Shine, yeah. right? And Audrey Rose was among them. And I think that makes sense. I do. I think Robert Wise is maybe getting to the point in his career where he didn't have anything else to prove. And uh, maybe he'd made all of the movies that he really passionately wanted to make. He wasn't going to make a better horror movie than The Haunting because that's just a fan-fucking-tastic horror yeah. movie. And he wasn't well-suited, let's say, to uh, Star Trek The Motion Picture, which I believe I said on my podcast I can only recommend as a sleep aid. <laughs> so this is more, you know, this is closer to his comfort zone as far as, you know, Weiss can totally handle this material. But I yeah. feel it's less about him being passionate about his this material and more about this is the movie that's popular right now. This is what the people want to see. This is my exorcist. Yeah, it's just swamped by other better movies. The Exorcist is clearly a better movie than this. Magic, which you were just talking about, which is another thriller anchored by Anthony Hopkins, just a wall-to-wall -wall better executed movie than this. Now, is this a bad movie going around the long way? No, it's fine. It's fine. But with the talent involved, Robert Wise, Anthony Hopkins, best-selling novel, zeitgeist moment movie, I don't know that it's all that. I think it's okay. And I think you're dead right that once we get into the legal 
thing uh, until we get to the final climax, which is not what you want or expect the movie to give you, which I will give points to. But the actual court case itself is ridiculous. And to be frank, especially the third time around, boring. <laughs> so, uh, like, I, it's not like The Exorcist of Emily Rose, where they, they were counterbalancing these two completely different genres in a way that helped, where we were seeing two different takes on the story, and maybe Anthony Hopkins was right, and maybe he wasn't. Clearly, Anthony Hopkins is right. Like, the plot point early in the movie is that she burns her hand on a frozen window pane. Yes. So, like, what's the explanation to this? But... I don't know. The, the the movie falls short for me on like I didn't lose sleep over it. I didn't. I guess I didn't see that in that perfect midnight showing sort of place that you did. So it kind of got under my skin. Inevitable that the movie is exactly what you think it is from the very first point. You you know Anthony Hopkins' character is acting aggressive and strange, but you don't feel that he means any harm to this girl, and you're right about that. And the story that he tells about reincarnation and the tragedy that happened to him. It would be a hard one to swallow, but at no point does the movie really ask you to doubt it. The only surprise it has is at the very end of the movie. I didn't see that ending coming, yeah, but it was a long walk hard. to get there. In here, I'm kind of all over the place, but I, yeah. I I, want to like the movie more than I do. I think it's one of those things that at the time, it was a really big deal. It's like Lost or something today. Like when everybody was watching Lost on TV and everybody's talking about Lost, and now nobody gives a fuck about Lost anymore, right? Yeah. It was, That's it had true. its moment, it's done. Audrey, That's well, true. I'm just, maybe that was a bad example, but Audrey Rose had its moment and it's kind of done. Like yeah. there are zeitgeist movies, even really big ones. I've, I've said things like The Blair Witch Project or Texas Chainsaw Massacre really uh, are helped by seeing them when they came out being yes. part of the moment that the mm -hmm. movie inhabited really sort of justifies the movie in a lot of ways. And the farther away we get from that moment, maybe the less the less sheen the movie has on it. And I feel like that's just the way I feel about Audrey Rose. It had its moment and it was fine, but it, it, we've moved past this. And I'm, I might have a little bit of a weakness for 70s cinema. And there's something about the 70s sure. horror that works for me for some reason more than anything else where I just, maybe it's because I was only in the 70s for a brief time, right? So I didn't get to kind of live in it as much, and I have this image of what it was like, and then to see kind of the, the things that happen in here, I, I just that style, that setting works well for me. But that was one of the moments was, uh, I, again, I, I had this experience. I found the movie on DVD. I was so excited. I bought it sight unseen. And then I, I, I showed it, This I said, this great 70s horror movie that freaked me right out. I showed it to a group of people who ended up laughing at it. And so that was like, oh, right. okay, so this might have been uh, Jason-only type of a thing that I'm one of the few that likes it. A few things I want to shout out, mention Hopkins and, and Marshall Mason. I like Norman Lloyd as that psychiatrist. Sure. The climax of the film when they're trying to hypnotize the girl and try to talk to Audrey Rose. And I, I just think that whole sequence is freaky and it works out well. The lighting, the cinematography. And that's where we're seeing how good Robert Wise is as a director. I think if, if you didn't have a master director like that, then that sequence could have come across as really silly. And it, it was, to me, it wasn't. Uh, what did you think about uh, John Beck? He plays uh, the father, Bill Templeton. I'm sympathetic uh, in some ways. Is that is a tricky character, like especially as a parent. You the plot machinations, like this guy is stalking your daughter. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think he, he does the job. Like uh, it's hard for me to like. Could I replace that guy with another actor, and maybe it'd be more comfortable? Possibly. I think that 
obviously there's tension between him and the Hopkins character. I don't know that it's that he's bad. It's just that Anthony Hopkins is so much more interesting, both as a character mm. and in execution, that he kind of gets washed off the screen to me. A bit. And I think that that conflict should... I think that conflict should be much more real. Like, you stay the fuck away from my daughter, right? Like, uh, and uh, uh, as those parents, like, so, yeah, that, spoilers, I guess. She is Audrey Rose. That is the reincarnation. She does relive the experience of Audrey Rose's death, but this time her daddy's there for her. Great. What about them? They just lost their daughter. Do they now wait for some their daughter to get, or, or was that ever really their daughter? Like, yeah. what's the thesis of the story here? Like, what really happened? Did they ever really have a daughter that was their own? Why is their yeah. tragedy not more of a tragedy than Anthony Hopkins' tragedy? <laughs> And I think theirs is a pretty, yeah, their, their tragedy is pretty brutal as well, too. I mean, like one is awful, sudden, horrible, can't say goodbye type of thing. The other one is they deal with, you know, months and years of ongoing, these night terrors and trying to protect this girl. And then what's the payoff here? I mean, you know, they just said it's, 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 a, it's a really dark story, I, I think, you know, when you kind of look at it as far as the payoff but getting there you said is a bit of a journey i almost wonder for some reason in that role i always think of nick nolte like nick nolte playing that role i think could have really taken hopkins on and like that would could have been maybe it would have been a little yeah. bit too accurately between the two of them going back and forth there but but yeah i, I was just curious i think he does a, a a good job i also like the actor john hillerman small role as one of the lawyers but he was a uh, on uh, magnum pi and in movies like yeah. uh, chinatown that was kind of the bright light in that courtroom section is just to see that guy in there. All of these movies that we've done this episode are full of that guy roles, though, aren't they? Yeah, There's a lot they of are. people in those. Hey, that guy. <laughs> again, I feel like I've been hard on the movies this 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 episode so far. I've been picking on them. Like again, I do think it's fine. I just I, I'm not particularly excited about Audrey Rose. It was yeah. in my collection, and I'm I'm down for Anthony Hopkins. Like I do think he. He was always a great actor. It just no, it, everybody kind of embraced it after Silence of the Lambs, but it wasn't like he was slumming it before this. This was 15 yeah. years before Silence of the Lambs, and he was killing it. He was in The Lion in Winter, which was an Academy Award winning, winning film in the late 60s. So, I mean, and all the theater there stuff that he was doing at that time, too. So, I, I'd encourage people to make up their own minds <laughs> on Audrey Rose. Check it out if you can find it. But it's another one that's been lost a little bit, and I just don't want movies to be lost forever. That's the concern I know as far as the streaming world and stuff that you've talked about. So, if you're a fan of the slow burn '70s horror movies, or you're a fan of Anthony Hopkins, it's a it's a safe bet. Oh, I saw a guy and got a two-inch needle stuck into his arm while he was under hypnosis. Didn't feel king. Okay, Kreskin, prove it. <clears throat> Hypnotize somebody. Yeah, do me. No. Come on. What's the worst that can happen? Close your eyes. Close your eyes. Close your eyes. Why do I know that song? Are you okay? What the hell did she do to me? I see a red door and I want it painted He hasn't gone to work. He sleeps like 12 hours a night. Why are you digging? The man's switch got flipped. He's a receiver now. She's taking him away. She was here. What's the problem? I see people turn their heads and quickly.
Back when we talked about the best movies of the 1990s, we both had the next movie, Stir of Echoes, on that list. Uh, written and directed by David Cope, based on uh, a novel called A Stir of Echoes by Richard Matheson. And controversially, 1999 was a crowded year. And one of the big success stories of 1999 was a little movie called The Sixth Sense. I think, as much as I like The Sixth Sense, that Stir of Echoes is a much better movie and does deal with some of the same themes as Sixth Sense, but is in many ways much harder in places, much scarier, and has just an amazing lead performance by Kevin Bacon. I remember I... I was actually pushing or hoping that this movie would catch on a little bit more that maybe, maybe, maybe in a very crowded year, Kevin Bacon would actually get a Best Actor nomination for this film. Essentially a, a blue-collar guy, working working man, about... Uh, a man who's about, you know, kind of going through a little bit of a, a midlife crisis. Uh, he was a musician, and maybe some some things have kind of changed in his life a little bit. And he's a father and a husband and lives in this neighborhood in Chicago. And then something kind of interesting happens. He, he and his wife are both kind of not noticing the fact that their young son seems to be talking to somebody who isn't there, and maybe they're, if they are, they're, they're kind of pointed off as an imaginary friend. But there's actually a, a, a much kind of darker thing going on. And from the first scene, that first scene is freaky. It leaves you unsettled right up until the end. You watch pretty soon this man and his son start to see things that they haven't seen before. Part of this is initiated by the great Ileana Douglas, an actor I really like, playing Bacon's sister-in-law. Hypnotizes at this party, hypnotizes Kevin Bacon and opens his mind. And when he opens his mind, he starts to see this ghost who has some mystery that's somehow connected to the house he he now lives in and starts to see the same things that his son has seen. And he becomes then obsessed with this and is almost willing to give up everything in his life to solve this mystery. And I, maybe I should have, first time I saw it in theaters in 99, seen the payoff coming a mile away, but I didn't completely. And I'm glad I, I had that time going on that journey. And every time I've revisited it, I've enjoyed the journey just as much. And I've picked up on something that has the potential to be quite scary. It doesn't scare me as much because I know what's going to happen. And then I'm left with just really enjoying these great performances, wonderful screenplay, so well directed. Visually, uh, the use of the Rolling Stones' Painted Black song is beautiful and how that's kind of subtly brought in with Kevin Bacon's just kind of casually strumming on his guitar. All of these hints to this wonderful mystery. Great source material, obviously, and a well-executed film. So if you're not getting it, I am an enormous fan of Stir of Echoes. You should be. I think it's an important work for the horror genre, both in the novel and in the film. And I think both of them are underrepresented or underrespected. When people think of Richard Matheson, they think of I Am Legend. They think of Legend of Hell House. They think of the gremlin on the wing of the airplane from Twilight Zone, right? They think of Button Button. They don't think of Stir of Echoes, and they should. 
You know who calls Richard Matheson one of his biggest influences? Mr. Stephen King. I'm sorry to make it always about Stephen King, but take a hard look at Stir of Echoes and take a hard look at The Shining. Yeah. The father-son dynamic is mm -hmm. I fucking identical. Like Jack Torrance is this character if he hits the sauce too hard and things keep going downhill in the next few years. Instead of ending up in the overlooked haunted hotel, they ended up in this haunted row house. The movie updates it. I believe the novel set in the 50s. I want to say either the 50s, maybe yeah. the 60s. I don't think it's super important. Contemporary, this one is. Yeah. Yeah. They made it very 90s, but. I think that as far as the, the mystery of the ghost story, that doesn't really change things at all. It just sort of updates it for the modern audience going to it. If there's a problem, and I'm saying if, because I don't think that there is <laughs> with Stir of Echoes, it's that well, thing is a the, mystery of the, the mystery to, that we're asked to, to solve or to witness in this movie is a very industry standard ghost story. Mm -hmm. And I think what The Sixth Sense had that this one didn't, other than everybody was blown away by that central performance in The Sixth Sense, was that big gotcha twist ending. It really surprised you with the payoff at the end of The Sixth Sense. Whereas I think that Stir of Echoes doesn't necessarily surprise you, but it satisfies you with its ending. And it's not all clean and dirty. In fact, the closing shot of this movie is quite chilling. But like... Um, Very frightening. Yes, Something bad happened to somebody in that house. And yes, the ghost is trying to communicate. And it can only reach the little boy because the little boy has great psychic ability, great shine, as it were. Uh -huh. The father doesn't have great psychic ability. He just has whispers of it. But he gets drunk at a party and his sister-in-law, played by Ileana Douglas, as you mentioned, hypnotizes him. And I have to say the hypnotizing sequence in this movie is brilliant. It's probably some of the best, most ambitious filmmaking that David Kapp has done in his whole career. There's mm -hmm. moments of it in, in uh, Secret Window with like Johnny Depp falling off the couch half in a dream, yeah. half asleep. But like the visual lifting of the couch and the movie theater and like the glow, the lights, the physically putting us inside the hypnotism, really, really, really well done. And he goes home and uh, he doesn't have a little flashlight in his head. Like the lights are on now. And he's got this song in his head and he can't figure out what it is. It's painted black. <laughs> but like, why does he have this song in his head? Because that song was playing when the girl died, right? Mm -hmm. The whole thing is reliant on the fact that not only does it still work as it's scary, but it still works as being scary. And it knows that you've seen movies like this. Yeah. When he starts going crazy and destroying the house and digging holes in the backyard, we know what he's looking for. The movie never says he's looking for the body. He never says he's looking for the body. It doesn't condescend to the audience to say that's what he's yeah. But I love the scene where he's got his son digging the hole in the backyard and his wife's furious. And he just looks at her and shakes his head. She's not over there. Yeah. <laughs> but... Bacon goes to such an obsessive, dark place there and is totally believable as the skeptic at the beginning and the unsatisfied family man. And to get to this to this point, that's the moment where I was like, this is a great performance. And for some reason, Kevin Bacon can't sort of crack the uh, people are like, well, that's Kevin Bacon thing. I, I don't know. I, you know, he, well, he has a great history of performances. He, like, he always gives great performances in movies that are kind of so-so. This is one of those mm -hmm. rare occasions where he gives a great performance, where the movie's as great as his performances. So we yeah. like that. Catherine Irby plays his wife, and my memory of her in the novel 
in the novel, she's kind of a little bit more supplicate. Like, I guess it was a different time. She just kind of quietly puts up with her husband going crazy. I think it's good that she gets a little bit more concerned about his, like, psychological well-being. And she's not on board with the ghost thing right away at all. But we don't dislike her. We understand her, uh, you know. And she's a like she this was the first movie that where she got my attention but she's she's been in a lot of stuff i just rewatched the addiction which is a movie you know I, I i love and she she has this smaller role in that as one of uh lily taylor's victims in that movie and she's very good uh but i think this is maybe her her best film role i know she's done some tv stuff and that kind of thing but this she was a chance a child murderer on oz who gets uh yes. that oh that's show. right that's where oh, i knew her from yeah. She's really good at that one. But she's kind of stayed under the radar for all this time. And I think if more people check out Stir of Echoes, yeah, Bacon is as the flashier character. And there's a lot of kind of flashy secondary characters, but she keeps up with him in this performance and in this film and is really key in, um, throughout and kind of in the third act in particular. And we just kind of see how, how things go. And it's just like some uh, Kevin Dunn, who's been in a lot of movies, kind of shows up there as his neighbor. But there's all this stuff with his son, and he's very proud. His son's like this big shot football player. And it does make sense in this neighborhood in Chicago that the football game would be big and the high school football player. And I mean, we we live in a city which is like this too, where those sorts of things, those achievements are kind of what making these young men into gods before they're men, right? And there's some amazing, besides that hypnotism sequence, there's a dream sequence which involves Kevin Dunn. And and then we start to see him, Kevin Bacon wakes up and some things that were happening in the dream start to happen right away, kind of like some sort of a psychic flash forward. And all of those payoffs are so good. So it's not just kind of- My personal band. favorite. The whole neighborhood it is, is part of this story. Sometimes I'm not quite sure where we are, like who are who are the heroes and who are the villains, and it is a a thoroughly satisfying psychological horror movie that I think maybe got a little bit lost in the fall of 1999 and should have been up there with the American Beauties and movies that got celebrated in that great year of cinema. Because I'm obviously still really pumped about this movie, and it's what is 22 years old now. So my favorite little detail of the movie is when the kid says he doesn't want to sleep in his room because mm -hmm. of the feathers and you're like what the fuck does that mean feathers and the movie tells you what it means later on and it's yeah. such a great payoff you're like if that kid was in his room he'd be dead right now <laughs> that's amazing Unlike other movies, I think I was talking earlier on with The Box or, or, or some David Kelly movies where they'll ask a question and leave it to you to answer it. This movie does is very clean. It, it does answer all of your questions. It, even if you're temporarily confused or what was that there for, there's always a reason for it. It's very clean in that way. And I, I respect that. There's nothing. There's nothing wrong with it. it. It's it's a classic form ghost movie. So I guess one could make the argument that it's quote unquote predictable. But I think it's perfectly executed. It is, it is perfectly executed, and it's just it's it's a genuinely scary ghost movie. And mm -hmm. sort of like uh, it's sort of what why I was impressed with The Conjuring is like that movie shouldn't scare me, and it still worked. 
in a lot of ways, this is a very familiar ghost story. Here's the challenge. If you actually watch the first scene of this movie and the last scene of this movie, both are going to leave you equally creeped out. And never mind everything that's great in the middle, that's, to me, a great horror movie. I want more people to check out Stir of Echoes because this is just one that I don't hear a whole lot of people. You've talked about it. I've talked about it. But I don't hear a lot of people talking about it as much as as some other movies that have, from the 90s that have been kind of rediscovered over the last few years. Well, and because I've been wanting him to go back to the horror genre, uh, I was super stoked about You Should Have Left, and it was the fourth movie I watched that day, and I yeah. think I think I just need to give it another day in court without all yeah. that expectation behind yeah. it. Uh, like, uh, that was last Halloween that when I was doing, like, 30 movies in a month or whatever, and I was just... But however or not, I'm going to give another day in court to that movie. I have never not loved Stir of Echoes. I've followed David Koepp's directing career ever mm -hmm. since that movie because of how much I liked it. He's an interesting director. He doesn't like to repeat himself, but he has never made a movie as good as Stir of Echoes, and I'm starting to think that he won't. You always hope. I, I, I love that. And he's always been a, a terrific screenwriter, too. I mean, he wrote Jurassic Park. Oh, yeah. yeah. He's uh, Spielberg's sort of box office fix-it screenwriter guy. I mean, whenever he's doing a crowd-pleasing movie, he will get David Kapp to do a pass on that script. And that's yeah. a pretty high compliment, I think. I mean, it's it's not a perfect film, <laughs> but, but to me, uh, this is the high water mark for him as a director. And I'm, I'm glad that we agree on this one. I just, for years, just couldn't understand. I think it just had the misfortune of coming out two months after The Sixth Sense or a month or two months after, and people saw The Sixth Sense and were gaga about that and kind of ignored Stir of Echoes, and it's, it's too bad. I think there was room for both of them at the end-of-the-year awards discussion. If you haven't seen it, watch it. I don't know what else yeah. I can tell you. Yeah, we're both gushing about it. It's a good thing. Parsons, thank you for being on my show again. I've made it very clear over the years. I love talking movies with you. Honestly, I, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. Probably if you called me every two weeks to be on your show, I'd be I'd be like, oh yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll drop everything and watch six movies tonight. <laughs> well, so we'll be starting yeah. the new season in the new year. So uh, I will yeah. be I will be I will be I will be using you as a resource. <laughs> yeah. So and uh, hopefully I can have you on again, and we'll we'll find it's been something different each time you've been on. So any theme you're interested in, I'm happy to have you on anytime that you're available. But I I know how it is. Like as far as you know, having your own podcast and you're you have stacks of movies that you need to get through and review and see, and then so uh, I'm well, happy I'm gonna... that once in a while we can work this out. Quick plug, rankandreview.ca. That's my podcast, Rank and Review. If you like this podcast, I think you'll probably like my past. So give her a listen. Plug. Okay. Yeah, you want to know plug. my scores then? Yeah, we'll we'll get to that. All right. So we're starting off with, uh, in the order we reviewed in them, how many points did you give the box? This is going to seem unkind, but it's because I gave a lot of points to other things. So I gave the box five. Evil Dead 2, I gave significantly more points to. Evil Dead 2, I think, is going to surprise you and 
its placement. It has 20 points. And Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters. This was a tough one because it's got a sentimental strength to it, but Ghostbusters is walking away with 15. I can't deny its cultural impact, but I also can't deny it is starting to show its age. Lord of Illusions. Lord of Illusions. I'm giving that one five points. I get Same as the box, but again, I have a lot of affection for it. I don't want that to sort of say that I don't. This not, I endorse all of these movies to a certain degree mm -hmm. or another, right? Uh, it's just where they're stacking on this particular list. Yeah, against each other, it's, it can be tough. Audrey Rose. Audrey Rose was my third five. I gave three fives. Is that cheating? No, no, it's all good. And Stir of Echoes. So by process of elimination, 10 points for Stir of Echoes, which would put it in third place, which is seems like uh, lower than it should. Again, from my ranking perspective, I would go Evil Dead 2, Ghostbusters, Stir of Echoes, Lord of Illusion, Audrey Rose, The Box. But okay. as far as my points go, I feel pretty similar about all of them. That's the, your math version of the show gives me a better opportunity to sort of give a fair shake on, on, on how I landed the movies. I force myself to stack them from top to bottom. So if I have six great movies, one of them still goes in last <laughs> <laughs> One's at the bottom. Yeah, I allow for sometimes at the top there can be a tie too. So just because it, they all sort of balance each other out, the, the weaknesses of one is the strengths of another. Kinder to the box. I, I gave it 11, and you, you could tell I like that one quite a bit more than you do. It worked for me. Maybe uh, ungenerously, I love Evil Dead too, but I, I gave it nine points. It could be quite low, but I was trying to spread the points out a little bit. This is the one where people could get mad at me. I'm only giving Ghostbusters six points. Maybe it's because I'm trying to champion some other movies that Ghostbusters can survive my six points but some of these other ones I'd like people to check out a little bit more. Lord of Illusions I gave eight points to. I recognize its its flaws but there's just something about it that I kind of like. I think you're, you were on to something. Clive Barker was starting to come into his own as a director but because it was a bit of a failure that's probably why he gave up. If it had been a box office success then who knows what he could have done as a filmmaker after yeah. this. Gave a whopping 13 points to Audrey Rose. I, I go for that 70s stuff. I go for the slow burn i go for like these these kids who are kind of possessed or kind of in this dangerous situation and and how they kind of combine medical science and psychology to try to explain it when it's really a supernatural phenomenon so i like it i like the actors very well directed by robert wise that's where i did my tie sort of even though i recognize stir of echoes is a better movie i gave 13 points to right. stir of echoes as well just to spread the points out so what that means is the movie that has the most points is evil dead 2 with 29 points followed by Stir of Echoes with 23 points then Ghostbusters has 21 followed by Audrey Rose with 18 and then The Box with 16 and the movie that has to leave my movie collection with only 13 points is Clive Barker's Lord of Illusions well that's gonna so be disappointing he, for you yeah well hopefully people will check it out anyway I, I don't think it's a bad movie at all neither of us do with that it's a it's a it's a blu-ray copy it's a nice blu-ray copy what would you like me to do with it well i only have a dvd cup <laughs> Well, there you go. Um, I could I could take the Blu-ray off of your hands so that you know that it's in somebody's hands who loves it, and then find yeah. a new home for my Lord of Illusions, thus making your problem my problem. I also want to stipulate how much I do love Stir of Echoes. Technically speaking, it ranked third, but Evil Dead Two is going to be number one because it most appeals to me. Like it's just a Larry movie. It is my splatstick movie of the '80s. Like it had to be one for me. And Ghostbusters, as much as it aged there's something immortal about Ghostbusters so like in a weird way those ones kind of had to be one and two but I wanted Stir of Echoes to be higher than it was 
<laughs> so in that respect, the box and Audrey Rose got lower treatment because of that. In a way, uh, I don't want to suggest that they're terrible movies. They were my the least. Those are my two least favorite of this bunch, uh -huh. I guess, that we watched. But they they were none of them a waste of my time. No, yeah, I, I said, I, and I'm glad you agree that they, they're all good movies. It's just kind of putting them up against each other can be a little bit tough. And yeah, I I, I think part of my points thing was not necessarily that I think less of Evil Dead 2 or Ghostbusters but I just kind of felt like these lesser known needed the points boost and I, I really enjoy them and I want I want people to sort of know about them and check them out and I'm glad that Lord of Illusions is going to find uh, a good home once again and I think at this point if my math is correct you've been on my show three times and I think you've taken home four movies two of the three four I think oh. yeah two of the first time because there was a tie at the bottom and right. and then and uh, you took the Blues Brothers movie That's and right. then this one. So. That was Blues weird because I had the Blues Brothers and it just vanished. It that disappeared. Was so that's how I worked out. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Anyway, thanks again for being on here. And I'm sure we'll hear from you again sometime soon. And please Cheers, check out brother. Rankin Review. And yeah, I, I, I've listened to every episode of Rankin Review. Actually, that's not quite accurate. I still haven't listened to our Tremors episode. I'm saving it for... I, I hate when I reach <laughs> the end and I have to wait for a new one. And I know I'm going to have to wait several months for a new Rankin Review episode. So I'm, I'm hanging on well, to I that. I got 200 episodes. So yeah. there's lots yeah. to choose from. <laughs> there's a lot to choose from there. want to mention Kirk Fitzpatrick, who's been on the show and is also been on your show as that uh, podcast, A Lifetime of Hallmark, as well as uh, Film Feast, uh, Matt Bledsoe's movie show as well. And he kind of does something different with every episode. He does one a week. And I, again, I don't know how he does it. I, I don't know. It takes me forever to edit uh, edit these shows. So at, at least every two weeks for me and you're, you're, you're two weeks when you're going and you're not serving hiatus there. So yeah, it's a lot of work to put these on. But to those listening, keep safe and continue to be kind to one another. And please continue to share this podcast with the movie fans in your life. Take care. Be well, thanks for having me, brother.